Well, that was great, wasn't it? Such a good thing to do this morning. Well, we're also this morning beginning or going back to our new series in the book of Isaiah, and we're going to be looking together at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. And this is really quite a well-known Bible passage, given that it's often read at Christmas time in carol services. And that's because it's a passage that speaks about the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whose birth we celebrate as Christians at Christmas time, and the one that we've been talking about this morning so far. I'm conscious we have a number of visitors here this morning for the baptisms, and so if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, let me explain that the book of Isaiah was written about 700 years before the coming of Jesus. And it's a book that's full of various messages from God to his people Israel, spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Let me read the passage to you just now, and then I'll try and explain a bit about what's going on. So this is Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as a people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulder, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness, From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. If you were here a few weeks ago, David introduced the series and explained that the opening chapters of the book tell us about the problem between God and his people. God's people Israel at this time, they'd rebelled against him, they're worshipping other gods, they're behaving badly, and they're oppressing the poor and the vulnerable living among them. Therefore, God's judgment is coming on them, first in the form of the Assyrian army invading from the north of the country, and then eventually at the hand of the Babylonian empire coming in from the east. But there are also hints of hope in this book. There's there's talk in the book of Isaiah of a remnant that will survive and a people that will once again inhabit the capital city of Jerusalem. There's the image of God's remnant people then being a light to the nations and and people from all nations coming to worship the God of Israel. And even though the kings ruling in Jerusalem uh, prior to this have been a fairly rubbish bunch, there is a promise of a coming king, a Messiah, who will rule perfectly and whose kingdom will never end. He will be in the line of King David, the first 
who was the first of the, of the good kings of Israel, but, but he will also be so much greater than David because he will reign with perfect justice and righteousness. And he will rule in a new world in which all evil and suffering will have been removed. So these words this morning given through the prophet Isaiah, although they speak prophetically of the coming Messiah, are set in a real historical context. Israel is being invaded by the Assyrian army. It was a time of great distress for all the people, as verse 1 says, a time of darkness and despair. God had repeatedly announced and warned through his prophets that unless his, his people turn from their idols and start living the way his people should, then he was going to bring a foreign army in to punish them. And, and that is exactly what happened. Tiglath Pileser III, the king of Assyria, he attacked the northern Israel about, about 734 BC. And the areas of Naphtali and Zebulun in particular suffered greatly. So that's the background to verse 1. And yet, in these verses we're looking at this morning, the prophet Isaiah is announcing good news. He declares, verse 1, that some point in the future, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, i.e., the, the areas of the country where the king of Assyria invaded. But at some point in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. As Christians today, we of course understand these words to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Around 740 years later, Jesus came and ministered in Galilee and Capernaum. He came as the Messiah, the Christ, when he came displaying his glory in the very place foretold by the prophet Isaiah in verse 1. And verses 2 to 5 then describe what the coming of the Messiah, the Christ, will be like. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So instead of judgment and darkness described at the end of chapter 8, instead of despair and fear comes the light of Christ breaking into that darkness. And when we read this passage at Christmas time, it's often with a candle lit or in a candlelit service. And the image of that lit candle reminds us of the light of Christ coming into the world and the difference that his presence makes. When we were working through John's gospel before Easter, we read in John chapter 8, verse 12, how Jesus speaking to the people declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Jesus Christ, a light has dawned. And verses 3 to 5 paint a picture then of what his coming kingdom will be like. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire." The imagery is that of a battle won. The soldiers dividing the spoils. The equipment of war can be burnt because it's no longer needed. And there's also the sense of, of joy that comes because the oppressor has been defeated. The prophet Isaiah is using language that would have brought to mind uh, the, the oppression that resulted when the Assyrian army attacked or the oppressions 
in the, in the days of Gideon when the Midianites repeatedly ravaged the land? Or even back to the oppression of the people of, of Israel in, in Egypt when they, when they suffered the yoke of slavery. All of that sort of oppression is overturned by the coming of the Messiah. Instead of despair and gloom comes hope and rejoicing. Like the joy a farmer experiences when he finally brings in the crop at harvest time, verse 3. You know how the farmers plow the land and they put the seed in and then there's a long period of waiting and eventually the crops begin to grow and, and at some point the harvest is gathered in and there's the celebrations. Similarly, Isaiah announces that that sort of joy is one day coming. The enemy will be defeated. The yoke of oppression will be shattered. There'll be no need for the tools of war anymore. They can all be burnt. Verse 5. Why? Why is this going to happen? Well, simply because a child is born, as we're told in verse 6. Not any child, but one who will sit on David's throne, one who will reign as king over God's people. For to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. Instead of the people carrying the heavy burden of oppression on their shoulders, this coming ruler frees them from that load and takes on his own shoulders the burden of government. He rules over them for their benefit, for their good. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is not just another human king who will sit on David's throne for 20 or 30 years, but rather a king whose kingdom will never come to an end. One who will rule with justice and righteousness forever. The peace and security and freedom spoken about in verses 3 to 5 are guaranteed because of this king. His government and peace will know no limit. And verse 7, we're told, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The people of God are not being called on to deliver themselves or to, to fight to defeat the oppressor. They're not asked to do that by their own effort. Rather, the victory comes because of the child that is born. As Alec Montier points out in his commentary, in the child's coming, all that results from his coming is at once secured. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It's because the son is given that everything that Isaiah prophesies come to pass, or, or at least is guaranteed to happen. This child's kingdom is one of lasting joy and peace. He will rule forever with justice and righteousness. The power of the Lord Almighty guarantees that that will happen. So, who is this child? Well, that brings me to the main verse I want to concentrate on this morning. That's verse 6 and the titles given to the child who is to be born. I just want to look at each of them in turn and, and think about how they affect us today, this side of the coming of Jesus Christ. For, of course, the child who is to be born that Isaiah is speaking about is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, the child who was born that first Christmas in Bethlehem, and the one who... Christians believe is Emmanuel, God with us, fully God and fully man, the true king over God's people, 
and the one through whom and whose death and resurrection bring us lasting peace, both peace with God and peace with one another. Isaiah is here foretelling the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person, the king who who Ross and Johnny are professing to follow. And the New Testament tells us how Jesus came to earth the first time announcing the kingdom of God, and when he returns a second time, he will do so in all splendor. At his final coming, we'll see all of these things fully fulfilled. All his enemies will be defeated. His eternal rule will be displayed for all to see. This is the child who has been born, the child that Isaiah is here telling us about. But what titles does Isaiah apply to him? Well, number one, we're told that this child will be called Wonderful Counselor. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Or maybe think of counselors as those who listen to our problems and give us some advice. But counselor here, in a biblical sense, is more that of one who uh, determines upon and carries out a program of action. A king who decides what's going to happen and makes sure it happens. You know, he's, a, he's got a royal program for improvement. My wife, Sarah, and I were down in London a couple of years ago with two of our children. And we did all the touristy things you'd expect us to do and uh, visited things like Greenwich and Hamleys and Hyde Park. But of course, there were all the various museums as well. And one of the things that particularly struck me on that visit was the influence of Prince Albert on so many areas of British life, as highlighted, I suppose, uh, by the Victorian Albert Museum. I don't know if you're aware of it, but I certainly hadn't been, that he had many plans and, and interests, including arts and science and trade and industry. He had dealings with Lord Shaftesbury and ideas for social welfare. Uh, he masterminded the Great Exhibition in 1851. It could be said that he was a royal counsellor, one who had plans for improvement and then worked to bring them about. And it's that idea of a royal program of improvement that's picked up here in Isaiah 9. This child who is coming will be given the title counsellor. And not just any counsellor, but wonderful counsellor. His wisdom and the ramification of his plans will cause people to wonder. They will glorify God because of this child and all that he brings about. It'll be supernatural. It'll be wonderful. It'll be extraordinary. He will have the wisdom to rule God's people eternally. And this side of the coming of Jesus Christ, we know that to be true. For those of us who are Christians, we know we've begun to experience this, and we can rely on Christ's wonderful counsel, His wisdom, and His purposes. God the Father is working out His plan He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a child. And through Jesus, his son, he's brought about his plan of salvation. And it's a wonderful plan, one that causes us to be amazed. The sheer audacity of a plan that involved the apparent defeat at the hands of human beings when Jesus was nailed to a cross. But then turns it all around in absolute triumph 
Just when Satan thought he'd won the victory, Jesus breaks forth from the grave and resurrection and, and proclaims that sin is dealt with and death is defeated. And to those who trust in him, he gives eternal life. And God continues to work out his plans for Johnny's life and Ross's life, for my life, for your life, for those of us who are seeking to follow Christ. Speaking to Old Testament Israel, he says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. How much more so is that true for God's children today? For those of us who are seeking to live with Jesus as Savior and Lord, we know that we are receiving and we will receive all the blessings of Christ in, in the spiritual realms. And we can be sure that God is at work right now to transform us into the image of Jesus. As I trust my future into the hands of Jesus, my King, and submit to His rulership in my life, I can be sure that Christ will be my wonderful counselor, the one who will work out his best purpose for me according to his glory. And I will be truly caused to praise him when I see it happening, and when one day he brings me safely into my eternal home in the renewed world. He's a wonderful counselor. Number two, the second title given to the child, verse six, is Mighty God. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. There is no doubt about the divine nature of this child that we're reading about in Isaiah. He will be given the title Mighty God because that's exactly who he is. He's God, truly God, fully God, fully man at the same time. Barry Webb in his commentary says that in the final analysis, the language of verse 6 can only apply to one who is God incarnate. These titles are so amazing, so extraordinary that they cannot just be describing a coming human king. No human king would be given the title Mighty God. Only God himself can be called that. That's who Isaiah is prophesying, the coming of God himself into the world, the mighty God. One of you have ever visited the National Museum of Flight outside Edinburgh. I, I have. I remember feeling rather cold and chilly as I stood on the open runways in that bleak spot. But there were some impressive planes there inside the hangars. And as, as well as Concorde inside, they have a hangar containing military aircraft, which includes the front part of one of these, a Nimrod aircraft. I say the front part because the Nimrod was one of the largest aircraft that the Royal Air Force ever used. And uh, had the whole of it been in the hangar, there wouldn't have been room for anything else. Um, it was used as a, a long-range surveillance aircraft, jam-packed with electronic gear and, and sensors. But the plane was called Nimrod after a character, Nimrod, in the Bible that we read about in Genesis chapter 10. We're told in Genesis 10 that Nimrod was a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. And I think that that's this idea behind the title in Isaiah 9. This Christ child is going to be a mighty warrior. Not in the sense that he goes into battle all the time and is always looking for the next fight, but in the sense that his power defeats any enemy. 
He has the power, the, the might to implement his plans and to, and to defeat his enemies. And again, that title is a real comfort to me today. Jesus Christ, who we're following as Christians, is not just a helpless baby born in a manger, but is now one who sits enthroned at the Father's side. After his death and resurrection, he was exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. Yeah, we, we don't fully get to see the benefits of his rule yet, but one day we will when he returns and all his enemies are subdued under his feet, particularly Satan and and his demons, then we will see it. In the meantime, though, we still benefit from his mighty power. He rules on high, using his power for the benefit of those who love him, those who've been called according to his purposes. God is for us. Jesus Christ, the mighty God, is with us. There is nothing that can separate us from his presence and care. Never does he leave us. Never does he forsake us. At times, the cares of life seem overwhelming. And and yes, our hearts do start to sink. But but you and I, if we're Christians, we're, we're encouraged to lift our eyes and see that Jesus is reigning in heaven. This child has now returned to the Father's side to reign and will one day come again and will fully display the mighty power of all creation that his title implies. Number three, we're told that he will be everlasting Father. It's a bit strange to describe a child as a father. And it's further complicated because this is actually the Son of God who's being described. But the title is appropriate and right because Jesus in his messianic kingship rules over us as God the Father would. He's father-like. I think of the words of an old hymn that says, Father-like he tends and spares us. Well our feeble frame he knows. In his hand he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Or maybe you could think of the words of the Lord Jesus when he says, He is the good shepherd who watches over his sheep. It's that idea of watching over or protecting or knowing what's best for us and guiding us in the right direction. In his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us not to worry because our Heavenly Father knows what we need. And then notice the word everlasting. When the people of Israel first asked for a king from Samuel, it's likely they thought a king would provide greater stability and protection for them. The time of the judges before the kings had been a turbulent one with with no consistent leadership, but but instead various judges like Gideon were, were raised up to deal with the crisis. And when King David and King Solomon then came along, there was indeed a period of peace and security for Israel, but it didn't really last. It quickly fell apart again. And God's people turned their back on God and he let them be overrun by their enemies. In contrast, the kingdom that is described here in Isaiah 9 is an everlasting kingdom. The father-like rule of this king will be an everlasting one. Forever and ever and ever. Everlasting father. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so again, for us today, if we're Christians, 
We live under the rule of Christ the King, and we benefit from this everlasting rule and security that His coming guarantees. Jesus the Christ is is the compassionate provider and protector of His people, one who will endure. The prophet Isaiah, in a later song of praise, says, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord, the Lord Himself, is the rock. I think that's what we're being encouraged to do as we hear this title again this morning. We are encouraged to place our trust in Jesus the Messiah, the eternal King, the Father-like ruler of His people. And finally, number four, the Prince of Peace. There's a lot of talk about the need for peace in our world at the moment, given all the trouble spots. But what, what is meant in Isaiah 9 when it describes the child as the Prince of Peace? Well, often the Bible uses the word peace. It does so at a number of different levels. It means peace within ourselves. It means peace between people. It means peace with God. For instance, we talk about being at peace, you know, having a sense that all is well, or, or being content that we've done all that we can or should do. That, that inner peace is a peace that we ultimately find in Christ. You and I, if we're Christians, have a deep sense that all is well because He is in control, or, or at least we're, we're trying to let that sort of peace rule in our hearts. There's also peace in the sense of absence of conflict, you know, peace between human beings, for instance. We were uh, thinking last Sunday morning about the wars that are going on in Syria and Yemen, and, and we might be tempted to think that the world's a terrible place, such darkness and, and evil. And yet, as Christians, we are reminded that because of Christ, there is a day coming when all wars will cease. There will be lasting peace when He returns and completely removes evil from creation. And in the meantime, we pray for greater peace in the world and for Him to restrain the hands of those who are intent on evil. But I suppose the greatest significance of this title announced by Isaiah is found in the peace that he brings between human beings and God. The child Jesus who was born grew up and died on a cross as we remembered Easter. He took on himself our sin, our our wrongdoing, and he died in our place so that the wickedness and rebellion that separated us as human beings from a holy God would no longer separate us. If we trust in Christ for salvation, we are no longer under God's judgment, but instead are drawn into His family as His children. Jesus has brought about peace between God and us. That's what baptism symbolizes, Mark was explaining. Ross and Johnny have asked Jesus to save them. They've had their sins forgiven. They've been washed clean spiritually. They've died to an old way of life and are seeking to live in a new way that pleases God with Jesus as their king. They have been reconciled to God and are at peace with him. And with the Holy Spirit's help, they're being transformed to be like Jesus and are looking forward to the day when they will be with him forever. That's ultimately what's meant by Jesus being the Prince of Peace. He will one day bring about peace within the whole of creation, eternal peace, for He is Prince of Peace.
If you're visiting here this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, then I want to ask you and encourage you to think very carefully about this child that Isaiah speaks about. 700 years before his coming. This child that has now come. To recognize and acknowledge Jesus the Messiah to be the ruler and guide that you need for your life. The wonderful counselor. To trust your life into the hands of Jesus, the mighty God who is able to work for your good in all situations. To see Jesus as the everlasting Father whose Father-like rule and care will provide for you for all eternity. And to admit your need of Him to be your Prince of Peace so that He can bring an end to the hostility between you and God and deal with your sin to save you and to make you one of His people to be your Savior, your Lord, and your King. Maybe you need to talk to someone here this morning about all that before you go. Talk to Johnny or Ross if you've come along for their baptism. Come and talk to me. Talk to someone beside you after the service. But for those of us who are Christians... These things are already real to us. We know the truth of these titles given to the child in Isaiah chapter 9. And so let's give thanks again today for who he is. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Let's pray. And the band are going to come up and get ready, please. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for sending Jesus in fulfillment of this prophecy. And we thank you for his first coming, that first Christmas time. And we look forward to his future return. In the meantime, we ask for your help to live as your people and to believe by faith and to experience your care for us, Jesus, that we may know these things that we've been considering this morning. Amen. Why don't we stand as we sing our closing song?